You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the Book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. The title of today's message is Be Set Free. You know, here in the book of Acts, we're reading about the incredible story of the spread of Christianity in the first century. The story of the spread of Christianity is that wherever the message of Jesus Christ spread, it changed lives. And as that happened more and more, families were changed and entire communities and societies were transformed as well. And the reason for that is because the gospel message of Jesus Christ is not only good news that you know in your head, but it's good news that you experience in your life. And one of the key elements of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to set you free. Jesus said that himself. He said that he came to set you free, to give you the freedom which makes you truly free. And the question is, you know, what does that mean though, right? That Jesus came to set us free. Well, here in Acts chapter 16, we're going to see three different people who became Christians and we're going to see how the gospel set each of them free. And as we look at them, we'll see that they're very different people, but yet many of the things that they experienced were similar. We're going to see as we look at their stories, some insight into the ways that God wants to set us free in Christ because of what Jesus did for us. So here are the three people we're going to see in this chapter. First, we're going to see the well-to-do, then we're going to see the mess And then we're going to see the not religious. So three different people, the well-to-do, the mess, and the not religious. And each of these people in our story, we're going to see how they become Christians. And in their stories, we see a bit of what it means to be a Christian and how the gospel sets us free. So let's get into it. We're going to talk about the well-to-do woman. Now we're, we're picking up here in our story. We left off in verse 15, but I kind of want to go back a couple of verses because I think that these three people... I want to get one more person in there who we talked about last week, but look at her from a little bit different angle. So we pick up the story today in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. In our study last week, we saw how through a series of events, which were at times frustrating and at times confusing, but through those events, God led Paul and his missionary team to the continent of Europe. And when they crossed over the European continent, the first place they went was a city called Philippi. And there in Philippi, the first Christian church in Europe was established, and the first convert to Christianity in Europe was a woman named Lydia. And Lydia is this well-to-do woman. She's well-to-do, but she needed the gospel, and the gospel set her free. So what we know about Lydia are a couple things. In verse 14, it says that two things about her. Number one, she was a seller of purple goods. And the second thing is that she was a worshiper of God. Now, purple cloth, purple goods, they were very expensive because the dye which was used to make them was rare. And that's why purple was worn by royalty because it was a bit of a status symbol to wear purple. It's kind of like in our day, driving a luxury car or wearing a Rolex, it showed that you have money. And so we know that Lydia was a wealthy woman. She was well-to-do. She owned a large house. And and if you think about it, we know people like this who live in our area as well. We know well-to-do people, people who've got it together financially. They own a business and business is going well. But there was something about this woman, Lydia, something going on in her life. As a successful businesswoman, she realized that there was more to life than just making money and having nice things. 
It says there in verse 14, the other thing we know about her is that she was a worshiper of God. Now that's actually, that term worshiper of God, that's actually a bit of a technical term. It refers to someone who is not a Jew, but who worships the God of the Jews. They're interested. They might attend some meetings and some services, but they haven't yet put down their yes and said, okay, I buy into this and I'm all in. And so we read how Lydia, she was gathered with some women to pray, and that's what happens that Paul and the other missionaries, they joined this gathering and they told them about Jesus. So here's Lydia. She's this well-to-do woman. She's got it all together, but there's this nagging feeling still inside of her that there's got to be more than this to life. There must be a God. There must be something more than just this material world. And so she's looked into Judaism. She's found it to be true. But the only thing is that to be a Jew is like a really big commitment. And she's not sure, you know, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can keep all those rules. I don't know if I'm ready to commit to that. I don't know if I'm ready to put down my yes and be all in. But then Paul the Apostle shows up. He starts talking about Jesus. And he starts telling them that actually all of the Jewish laws, the customs, the stories, they're all for the purpose of pointing to this one person, this Messiah, who, who God promised to send and set us free from sin and cleanse us and justify us before God. And Paul says, and he has come, this Messiah has come. His name was Jesus, and he was in very nature God, and he died in our place in order to make us right before God. He says, not, before, not by our own works or by the keeping of the law, which we're incapable of doing, but Jesus, the Messiah, he came and through him because of what he did, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, because of all that, that's why we can be saved. And we read that the Lord, it says there, the Lord opened Lydia's heart and she believed and she was baptized. Lydia was already open to the things of God. She just hadn't put down her yes. She hadn't committed, but it was when she heard the gospel that she's saved not by what she does for God, but because of what God has done for her in Christ. It was when she heard that message that she said, that's good news. And she said, okay, I'm ready to put down my yes and say, I'm all in. Now, how many people do you know who are like Lydia? How many people, of, how many of you would say, maybe I'm kind of like Lydia. I mean, life is going well, business is going well. In, in all the material areas, things are great. But there must be more than this to life. And so you've, you're open to God. You've started looking into some things, but you haven't yet put down your yes. You haven't said, okay, I'm committed all the way. For some reason, there's still a sense of hesitation. Well, for Lydia, this well-to-do woman, the gospel set her free. And what it set her free from was the crushing burden of needing to and feeling the need to justify herself by being good enough. Justify herself before God by her own works and being a good enough person. The gospel set her free to rest in what Jesus Christ had done for her. See, that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to see and embrace what Jesus has done for you so that you can be set free from trying to justify yourself before God by what you do. For the religious person, God is useful. That's how religion and religious people view God, that God is useful. That if they do certain things for God, that he in turn will then do some certain things for them. So there's a usefulness there for God. But for the person who understands the gospel, God isn't primarily useful. For them, God is primarily beautiful. That's how they see God. And that's why they want to obey him. Not in order that he will then do something for them, but because he's beautiful. See, religion is outside in. If you do these things, God will accept you and bless you. But Christianity is inside out. 
God has accepted you. God has blessed you with every blessing in the spiritual places in Christ. You are free. You, you, can, you can rest. You've been justified. You've been forgiven. You've been adopted as a son in Christ. And because of that, you are free. And you can rest in what Jesus did for you. And that's why you live for him. That's why you praise him. And when you see and you understand the gospel like that, then worshiping God and seeking God, it doesn't drain you. It's not exhausting. In fact, what it does, quite the opposite, it fulfills you. And that perspective and that attitude about the gospel is what really fuels growth in our lives. So Lydia was set free from this crushing burden of trying to justify herself before God. And you can be too. That's the message of the gospel for us as well. Now the next person we see in the story Uh, We've seen a well-to-do woman. The next person we see is a woman whose life is a mess. And check out what it says in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now, some of you might say, I'm not sure if I can relate to a person like Lydia. That's not my story. I've never been well-to-do. Well, then maybe you can relate to this girl. Maybe there's some of you who can relate to her. This girl's life was a mess. She's broken. She's hopeless. Spiritually, she's in darkness, and she's being exploited and abused by other people for their own selfish gain. And it's really interesting that her story comes right after Lydia's because this girl's like the complete polar opposite of Lydia. Lydia was rich. This girl is completely poor. She owns nothing, not even herself. Lydia was upper class, but you couldn't get any lower in society than being a slave, and on top of that, being a female slave. Lydia was moral. She read the Bible. She goes to prayer meetings. This girl is the opposite of that. She's immoral and she's possessed by a demon. This girl has completely lost control over herself and her life. She's demon-possessed and she's a slave and she's being used. Her malady is being exploited by other people to make a profit. In our day, this would be like people who are trapped in human trafficking and a sex trade or, or people who are addicted to drugs. They've lost control of their life. They're at the mercy of other people. And those people actually profit from their brokenness. And so those people aren't interested in helping them get better because they actually benefit from their problems. It's evil and it's wrong. And maybe there are some of you, you can relate to this girl. Maybe now or maybe at a time in the past, your life was a mess. You've done things which you shouldn't have done. You've been taken advantage of. Look at how the gospel, though, comes into this girl's life. Verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. You know, this girl was like their groupie, right? She like followed them around shouting, these men are the servants of the Most High God. They've come here to tell you the way of salvation. Now you wonder, well, well, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Because it's kind of hard to tell, right? On the one hand, she's saying something that's correct. I mean, she's not saying anything that's not true. On the other hand, do you really want the demon-possessed slave girl fortune teller to be your main source of publicity? Probably not, right? So after a while, it says that Paul had enough. He got annoyed and he said, you know, look, even though what she's saying is right, this girl is clearly suffering under some kind of demonic oppression and she needs to be set free. And so Paul cast this demon out of her, not by his own power or authority, but in the name of Jesus. And she was set free that very hour. 
She was set free from spiritual oppression by a spiritual power which was greater than the power of evil. You see, the same is true for us. If anyone suffers from spiritual oppression, Jesus Christ can set you free. He proved that through his resurrection, that he is greater than death and evil and whatever power might be controlling you or oppressing you, he has the power to set you free from it and overcome it. You know, whatever things you you might be controlled by or under the controlling influence of in your life, whether that's an addiction, an addiction to substances or even to pornography or, or anything else that possesses you, God has the power to set you free from that and fill you with his spirit so that you can live under the controlling influence of his spirit. For the person whose life is a mess, whether by your own choices or because of what other people have done to you, you've given yourself over to a kind of depravity that has now consumed your life. That's the story of this girl. But this is the good news for you and anyone in that situation. That no matter where you've been or what you've done, Jesus Christ has the power to come into your life and not only forgive you, but to set you free from those things. Jesus has the power to come into your life and change you and cleanse you. And he will come into your life and he will live inside of you and make you a new person from the inside out. But look what happens next in verse 19. But when her owners saw that the hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the market before the rulers. And once this slave girl is set free from this spiritual oppression that she's under, immediately it affects the rest of her life as well. And that, that is true in general too. You know, I have friends in Budapest who leave a, lead a great ministry. And what this ministry, it's called Anonymous Road. And uh, what the ministry does is it helps prostitutes get out of prostitution. And what they do is they'll share the gospel with these women. They'll provide them a safe place to go. They'll provide them with food and clothing and, and all take care of all their needs. And then they'll help them get jobs and reintegrate into society so that they're not in this, you know, vicious cycle of prostitution anymore. It's a wonderful ministry and they've had a lot of success, but there's a lot of risk involved in it. Because what happens a lot is that when they take these girls off the streets, their handlers, you know, the pimps who who collect all their money from them, they will come after and look for and attack the people who lead this ministry. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, a danger involved with this because when they take a prostitute off the street, they're taking away a source of revenue for the people who are exploiting that person. It's a very similar situation here. These men are making money off of this girl's problems and now that her source of revenue or their source of revenue is gone, they're upset. And so look what happens in verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, of course, these are kind of false, trumped-up charges. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders for them to be beaten with rods. So after we see the well-to-do And then we see the mess. The next thing we see, we turn our attention to, is this third person who's going to come into play. And he is the not religious. Now here are Paul and Silas. They've just helped this girl who's being exploited and abused. They've helped her be set free and given a new life. And what happens to them as a result? You know, no good deed goes unpunished, right? They get arrested. They get attacked by a mob. And now they're 
being ordered to be beaten with rods. In the Roman Empire, there, was, there were two sets of laws. Um, there was a set of laws for Roman citizens, and there was a set of laws for non-Roman citizens, foreigners and immigrants. And Roman citizens had certain rights. They had the right to a fair trial, for example. But if you were not a Roman citizen, uh, you had very little uh, human rights. And so local magistrates were allowed to do pretty much whatever they wanted to foreigners who they deemed to be causing trouble or breaking the law. And so these people assumed that Paul and Silas were not Roman citizens because they're Jewish. And so without any trial, without any due process, they have them beaten with rods and cast into prison. We pick it up in verse 23. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now being beaten with rods was essentially a form of whipping. This is something which it wasn't uncommon for people to even die from just being beaten with rods. So their backs, you can imagine, they would be lacerated, probably bleeding, oozing wounds. And so they arrive in prison and what happens, the jailer, it says he puts them in the innermost cell and fasten their feet in the stocks. Now I don't want to gross you out but I'm kind of going to gross you out. So the, the innermost cell in the Roman prison was really the worst possible place to be. It was at the center of the building, and which meant two things. Number one, it meant, of course, no windows, so you're in complete darkness. The other thing it means this is this. The way these buildings were built is that all of the human waste would flow from the outer cells into the innermost cell, and that's where it all drained to. And so um, it was disgusting. It was dark. It was putrefying. It was terrible. And so they're placed in stocks, which means they can't move. They're just sitting in this waste. This was a form of torture. As stocks, you know, what they would do is they were wooden blocks that they would put your feet in, and then they could adjust them. What they would do is spread your feet wide apart until it just caused pain, and they would leave you in that for hours, you know, so you're getting cramps and a lot of pain. It was a, it was a form of torture. And uh, that's what was done to them after being beaten. So it, that makes it all the more incredible what we read in verse 25, that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Even though they've been arrested and beaten, even though they've been tortured, and they're in unthinkable condi uh, conditions and circumstances, even though they have no idea whether tomorrow is going to bring freedom from suffering or whether it's going to bring more suffering or even if it's going to bring death, in spite of all these things at the midnight hour, in complete darkness, in the innermost cell, Paul and Silas, rather than groaning and complaining, are praising God and singing songs of worship. And that's incredible. It should be surprising to us because it's easy. It's easy to be happy in pleasant circumstances, but this is something different. This is a joy which is so deeply rooted that you can take everything away from these people and they still have joy. Nothing can stop them from praising God. There was something they had deep down inside that wasn't shaken by these circumstances. It wasn't shaken by beatings or even torture. You know, it's been said that people are like sponges, and when they're squeezed, that's when what's on the inside tends to come out. And Paul and Silas here, they're squeezed, and look what comes out. Not cursing, but praise. Not grumbling, but worship. This is the same Paul the Apostle who would later write to the church here in Philippi, the same church, and he would say this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Now, it's easy for us to say, right? Well, that's easy for him to say because he didn't have to deal with all the stuff that I have to deal with. 
No, of course not. He had to deal with things that most of us will never have to deal with. And he went on in that same letter to the Philippians, and he said this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. See, when we read these, it's really easy to think of them as kind of like hallmark platitudes. But you need to understand where they're coming from. This is coming from Paul the Apostle. For him, these were not trite platitudes from a person who doesn't know what real problems are. Paul lived these words. This is what he did. These prison walls had probably never heard such a sound as men praising God. No wonder that all the prisoners were listening and taking notice. But look at what happens next in verse 26. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. For those of you who have ever experienced an earthquake before, uh, you know, what earthquake have you ever heard of that causes prison doors to fly open and handcuffs to fall off? Like, no earthquake I've ever heard of. See, this was more than an earthquake. This was a miracle, right? The ground shakes, and then all of a sudden, you know, um, handcuffs are falling off and doors are open. And Paul and Silas, see, they didn't know this was going to happen. The, the reason they were singing praises in the midnight hour wasn't because they thought that if they did that, well, then God would set them free, like they were kind of buttering God up so that he would do something for them. No, they worshiped in these terrible circumstances because they had a real substance of hope and joy in their heart, hope that came from a perspective on life that was completely different than anybody else in that prison. In other words, they worshiped not because they viewed God as useful. They worshiped because they viewed God as beautiful. And that was because they understood and they knew the gospel. The love of God and the hope of the life that is to come, which this suffering only made all the more poignant and meaningful. You know, what would you do if you're wrongly imprisoned and then as you're praying, your chains fall off and the prison doors open? Well, we'd probably say, Praise the Lord, right? God just set me free. Thank you, Lord. I'm out of here. And probably that's what Paul and Silas were thinking too until, well, look what happened next. Verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. This jailer, do you remember this guy? This is the guy who put them in the inner cell where all the waste flows into. This is the guy who tortured them and put them in stocks. So what do we know about this jailer? Let's just look at him and try to create a picture of who this man is. Well, a jailer is what we would call in our day a warden. So he wasn't a prison guard. He was the boss over the whole prison. Now it's nearly certain that he was, as a warden of a prison, a jailer, that he was a former Roman soldier. It's almost certain. And why? Because almost all civil service jobs in the Roman Empire were given to retired soldiers because they were good jobs. And so this jailer, you look at him, and if you look at him compared to the people who came before him, Lydia and the slave girl, right? His life is neither a success nor is it a mess. I mean, if Lydia's a success and the slave girl's a mess, this guy is somewhere in between. He's every man. He's your everyday Joe, right? Or yeah, he's your average guy. He, he's not a huge success, but he's not a mess either. He's got a stable job. He makes a decent wage. He's not rich, but yet he's not poor either. He's kind of just fine. He's got everything he needs. He is middle class. He's got a wife and 2.3 kids and a dog and a cat at home. He drives an SUV or a pickup truck. He likes to watch the Broncos. He spends his weekends hanging out with his family and working around the house. He's an ex-GI. He's a blue-collar, regular guy. 
The other thing we know about him, look at how he responds when he thinks that the prisoners have escaped. He draws his sword to kill himself. Now under Roman law, if you were the prison guard or the jailer and the the prisoners escaped, then the guards and the warden are going to be executed. That was the rule. So what that tells us about this man, that he's just going to end it himself, tells us he's a very practical man. He's a soldier. He's not overly emotional. Look at the way he treats Paul and Silas. I mean, emotionally, he's a cold person. He knows that he's responsible for these prisoners, and if they've gotten away, he's going to die. And he says, well, if I'm going to die, I might as well just get it over with and do it myself. Save everybody the trouble, save myself the trouble. He's a practical man. But when it comes to spirituality, think about this. He is indifferent. He's not going to Bible studies and prayer meetings like Lydia, nor is he demon-possessed like the slave girl. He's just kind of somewhere in between those two. He's not spiritually seeking, nor is he in spiritual turmoil. He's really just fine. He's spiritually indifferent. He doesn't really care. He's just a regular guy. He's what we would call in our modern vernacular a dude, right? He is a dude. That's, That's him. Now, how many of you know people like that? I think that is a lot of people who live in this area. And so check out what happens in verse 28. It says, But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. So when Paul and Silas see this man about to kill himself, they realize that their freedom means his death. You see, just because a door is open doesn't mean that you have to go through it. Just because there's an opportunity to do something doesn't automatically mean that you should do that thing. The circumstances say escape, but love for this person says stay. And so Paul and Silas somehow are able to keep the other prisoners from escaping and they tell the jailer, hey, don't do anything. We're all still here. I mean, can you imagine this? Prisons with open doors and prisoners choosing not to escape. That's bizarre. It's weird. It's not normal. And look at the effect that it has on this man. Verse 29. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. You know, the question that comes to a lot of people's minds is, you know, how do you share the gospel with somebody who just doesn't give a rip, right? Like somebody who doesn't care. And many of you, peop- many of you know people like that. Maybe it's a child of yours, you know, a grown child or a sibling that you have or a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, and they just don't give a rip. They don't care. They're not interested in spiritual things. They think that church is a waste of time. They know that there are these big ultimate questions out there, right? Like, like what's going to happen when we die? Where are we going to spend eternity? But they just don't really care. They're, they're a lot like this jailer. They're just fine in life. They've got what they need. And they're not in spiritual turmoil. And they're not spiritually seeking. They're just the people who say, hey man, I'm, I'm not religious. It's fine with me if you're into that kind of thing, but me, I'm not religious. Now, I know so many people like that, and I know that you do too, because people ask me a lot, you know, what do I say to a person who's just not interested? Well, check out what we learn from the story of the jailer and how he came to Christ. What this story shows us is this, that when it comes to a person who doesn't give a rip, who doesn't care, who's indifferent about the gospel, you can't just tell them the gospel, you've got to show them the gospel, And that's what happened with this man. That's what turned this callous soldier into a trembling man who falls down on his knees before Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? 
He knew that what Paul and Silas were all about. Like the slave girl had said, these are servants of the Most High God who have come to tell you the way of salvation, the way to be saved. And he says, tell me how I can be saved. He, he's heard Paul and Silas sing songs of worship, songs of praise, songs of salvation. You see, there were two things that the jailers saw in Paul and Silas that completely changed the way that he thought. Two things that didn't make sense to him, that were so utterly different that they made him realize that these men had something, something real that he didn't have but that he desperately needed. The first thing he saw in them was this, their attitude towards suffering. I mean, here they are praising God in the midst of their suffering. Who does that? They have a joy, they have a hope that's rooted in something so deep that you could take away their money, you could take away their freedom, you could take away their comfort, and, and you could squash their ambitions, and you're going to take their lives away. But the joy is still there. You could take almost anything away from these people, and their joy would still be there. That's not normal. That's weird. The second thing that he saw in them was this, that they repaid evil with good. Even though they, he had treated them cruelly and callously, even though he had tortured them, Paul and Silas repaid evil with good. They didn't escape. They didn't let anybody else escape because they knew that if anybody left, it would cost this man his life. And after all that this man had done to them, they still repaid evil with good. And the jailers never seen anything like this before. It's a completely different way of living. This is a completely different way of relating to people and relating to God. I mean, who does these kinds of things? Praising God in the midst of suffering? Showing forgiveness and love to those who have mistreated you? Who does that? See, the reason that Paul and Silas didn't take their freedom at the cost of the jailer's life is because they had already gotten their freedom at the cost of Jesus' life. They had gotten real freedom. And now they've become people who overcome evil with good because that's what Jesus did for them. You see, the ultimate example of repaying evil for good is, is Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And it's in seeing that, that display of the gospel in these men's lives, this glimpse of the gospel at work for this very practical man, what it does in, in these people's lives practically, it causes this jailer to get on his knees and say, you have something I don't have, but I want it. See, with people who are indifferent, the thing that is going to impact them more than anything else is not just telling them the gospel, but showing it to them. And I don't know if you have uh, seen Time Magazine this, this week. It's actually, I think it's coming out this coming week, but I, they've released some of the articles. So Time Magazine's new issue this week has a cover story about the shooting that took place last year in a church in Charleston where during a prayer meeting, uh, a man entered the church and opened fire. And it was racially motivated. It, nine people died. Five people survived. And in this article, they interview the survivors and the families of the, the people who died. And without exception, every one of the survivors and the families who lost loved ones, they all speak about how they trust God and they forgive those who shot and killed their loved ones and who intended to take their lives as well. And I was reading some of the comments on this article. And that was what I found particularly interesting. That there were so many people commenting on this article who just couldn't wrap their heads around this. They couldn't wrap their heads around the response of Christians to these kinds of tragedies. They can't wrap their heads around how people can continue to trust in God and praise God and view God as good and loving and, and not give up their faith after something like this happens to them. They can't wrap their heads around how these people could forgive this man 
who for no reason whatsoever came in and took away their loved ones from their lives. It's just so utterly different. It's so foreign that it gets people's attention. I mean, that's why Time is doing an article about it in the first place because it's so surprising. It's so remarkable. These people are living out the gospel and, and they stick out. They stick out in society. They shine like stars in the night sky. And in the case of Paul and Silas, their response to suffering and their love for this man who mistreated them, it got this man's attention. And he came to them and he asked, sirs, and I think that's interesting, right? He speaks to them with this term of respect. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's that simple. It's that profound. I read the story of a chaplain in the British Army back in the day. His name was James Taylor Smith. And he had a test for candidates who applied to be army chaplains. He would ask them what they would say to a man who was dying and had three minutes to live, how they would tell them how they could be at peace with God. And, and if, they could only, if they could do it within three minutes, then they passed the test. But if they couldn't do it within three minutes, then they weren't fit to be a chaplain. And I think that's an interesting question to ask ourselves. Uh, would you be able to communicate the message of the gospel clearly and succinctly to someone if you had the opportunity to do it. Paul certainly could. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Verse 32, we read this. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now isn't this a transformed man? I mean, look at this man. The same wounds which he himself inflicted, he now washes and binds these wounds. And, and there's Paul and Silas, and they baptize this man who had tortured them only a few hours earlier. The jailer brings them into his own house, and he... he feeds them a meal there in the middle of the night. And check this out in verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, turn my page, hang on. Saying, uh, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Remember, this all happened after midnight, this whole thing with them being in the cell and the earthquake. It all happened after midnight. And so here, as it gets to be morning, the jailer says, okay, guys, look, uh, it's morning, so I need to take you back to the jail, and you've got to let me lock you up and put the handcuffs back on you, or else I'm going to get executed. That's just how this works. And so he takes Paul and Silas. They eat a nice meal at his house, then he takes them, and he takes them back to the cell, he handcuffs them, and he locks the door. And then in the morning, the magistrates come, and they've looked into the situation a little more after there was this whole mob incident, and it turned out that Paul and Silas hadn't done anything wrong, and so they say, okay, you guys can go free. Now, you've got to kind of wonder here, right? Like, if God knew that Paul and Silas were just going to be released the next day anyway, then why send this whole earthquake that opens the doors? I mean, what was the point of that? But don't you see now? Don't you see that God didn't send the earthquake to set Paul and Silas free? He sent the earthquake to set the jailer free. In fact, you've got to wonder if, in fact, this whole incident, this whole thing with Paul and Silas being arrested and beaten and all this stuff, if it didn't all happen by the providence of God for the sake of this jailer and his family so they could be saved. And you might look at that and say, 
well, I don't think that's fair for Paul and Silas. But I would tell you this, I don't think that they would have seen it that way. See, these were two men who said, Lord, my life is yours. Do with it whatever you will for your purposes and your glory. Lord, I give you my life. God, I know that because of Jesus, eternity awaits me. There is a life that is true life that is yet to come. So this life of mine, here and now, let it be like a penny in your pocket that you can spend how and where you please. And God did use them in great ways. Let's finish the chapter here in verse 37. Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now there's an interesting note just here at the end of this last verse. Earlier in this chapter, we began this section with a different pronoun, right? The author of the book, Luke, he had joined up with Paul and the missionary team when they traveled to the city of Philippi and he started using the word we because he was traveling with them. But notice now the pronoun changes again and now it's they. So what that tells us is this, that probably Luke stayed behind in Philippi with this fledgling church. And look at who their members consist of. A well-to-do lady, a, a girl whose life had formerly been a mess, and a man who used to be a not religious guy. But all of them, in different ways, had been set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of them was set free from the burden of trying to justify herself before God. One of them was set free from physical and spiritual oppression. And all of them were set free from their sins. And they were set free unto eternal life. That freedom is offered to all of us as well today in Jesus Christ. And whether you relate to any of these people or whether you relate to none of them, the call of the gospel for you is to come to Jesus Christ, put your trust in what he did for you on the cross, and be set free. Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you for the promise of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that through the gospel you set us free. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who is saying, yes, I need that in my life. I need to be set free. I need to be set free from the crushing burden of trying to justify myself before God, of having that weight on my shoulders. I need to be set free from, from addiction or something that has got me in bondage. Lord, would you set me free from that or from some unforgiveness or bitterness. Lord, whatever it is in our lives, Lord, we pray that you would set us free. Set us free from our sins. And Lord, set us free unto eternal life. Thank you that you have done that work in Jesus. We embrace that today. In your name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our Revolution series, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.